The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their career and lives. In this episode, we're talking to Eli Gold, U.S. Representative at QWeb Wood Construction Group about timber structural systems in modern digital workflows. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's in structural engineering from UC San Diego. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green, and I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the structural engineering trade manager for the United States and Canada. I'm currently in EIT in Texas and received my bachelor's in civil engineering from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And now I would like to introduce our guest for this episode, Eli Gold. Eli graduated with one of the first dual architecture and forestry degrees from Yale in the early 90s, with a conviction that the two fields would eventually be more linked. After nearly a quarter century, this seems truer and even mainstream, but for many years, it was an entrepreneurial effort in the small vertical wood prefabricated companies he ran in Vermont and in the automated timber industry where he often consulted. For the last three years, Eli has brought those experiences to a nonprofit market development role for QWeb. When he is now trying to transform the AEC industry into a positive climate force, he enjoys small town and organic farm life in Vermont with his family. Before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us to keep it free. So now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard Group USA. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wick drains, earthquake drains, stone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid compaction, and soil mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches, such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroup.com. USA.com. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week. Eli, welcome to the show. We briefly introduced you earlier on in the show, but in your own words, can you please tell our listeners a bit more about what you do daily at the QWeb Wood Construction Group and your involvement in the AEC industry? Thanks for having me. This is a cool podcast and I'm daily speaking. I'm an architect in the U.S. with a wood structure background. So I was recruited by a, um, a Canadian nonprofit to help their members navigate 
the market development challenges in the US. And that can range from code problems, project, early project support, simple outreach, education of architects is a big one, training people how to do wood structures. And yeah, I certainly talk with my downstream engineering friends, but I'm not an engineer, as you'll see. We talk some more about that, but we're basically supporting the larger companies who are exporting wood structure packages to the U.S. This is not straight uh, commodity lumber, but an actual structure that's getting loaded on a, a truck, a train, or a boat and showing up at your job. I'm the boots on the ground in the nine months before then. Could you talk to us about some of the timber structural systems and maybe some of the challenges that occur when you're modeling them or describing these modern timber systems with existing software? We had to go and actually build a plugin to actually get around some of the hurdles. So, and then when we started building it, we realized what a incredibly varied practice community, the whole wood structure community is. It's not just a list of products. It's really, there's we have sorted four main uh, delivery methods, which roughly correspond with the way digital tools see them. So the simplest being loadable components like your glue lamp, post and beam are things that you already are handling much like you do a steel frame. You can even download out of the box families of other glue lamps, but this is a young industry where people's there's not one standard size and there's not one standard fiber. So we did loadable components in a stream for post and beam. And then we have really the new material, which is mass timber slabs. And that's really not handled well by the current modeling programs because they're used to concrete slab on deck. And that's really where we fit in. We're, we're offering lightweight all wood slabs that essentially live in your BIM model and your project like a concrete slab on deck would. And I will talk some more about some of the challenges or the shortcomings about what the software is actually doing on data with that. We are there with our fully uh, dimensionally coordinated slabs. And then the third stream relates to basically what I would call Well, you could say panelized enclosures, but that would be kind of simplistic. It's actually the custom wood enclosure stream can encompass everything from the traditional lightwood frame truss and wall packages and and floor trusses that you might have seen around you to some real niche specialties like timber curtain walls. So all of these are structural systems that contain wood and that help to actually enclose your building. That's a pretty big and varied stream. And the final one that we're really only working on behind the scenes right now, we're not quite ready even for a beta, will be modular or volumetric uh, delivery. And those are that's also a big topic in and of itself. We decided we would build a pretty comprehensive and free plugin and then update it continuously so it would become a sort of in-app marketplace for new content because this is a young industry that's just changing all the time. You're doing everything from the the glue land systems, but what you're seeing now is like some of the the mass timber slabs. And like you were saying, I think everything comes in basically kind of like prefabricated on site. And obviously that needs a lot of coordination. So all that software, those plugins it's essential because I guess you can kind of treat it like steel. Everything needs to fit together. 
but the BIM industry and some of the software isn't up to date on that. Like I couldn't find like probably some of those pieces in there right now, for example, if I was going in Revit. So I know what we do are. <laughs> yeah. And some of that's fair because it's, it's a new industry. And I mean, we're a trade association who helps growth companies do export. So it's kind of fair that like, okay, there's a, a new company who's not listed on Revit, but I'm going to call them out a little bit and urge them to like a new material like CLT. It's time. And I think they are scrambling now, but like we're capable of doing a lot, but we can't do the heavy lifting about, for instance, your engineers will totally understand that a lightweight wood slab has a strength axis and it has a weak axis. And some of the fibers are really different. Some of the plies are really different. I happen to have like one manufacturer who makes a super strong fiber, really wide panel. You can span a hallway with nothing there. You can set an eight foot panel over a hallway by 64 feet long and run all your HVAC up that hallway. That's just a brilliant feature of the material. And if I open Revit, there's not enough fields. There's not enough data fields to describe the weak axis strength factor. I'm kind of like leaning on them now that now that we've built a plugin, we would like to also see emerging standards work from other where from Europe especially, but wherever it's settled, it needs to be adopted in the software because the engineers I work with downstream are handling it really well and programs like Tecla and all of their own programs can handle what we're talking about. It sometimes is the front end tools that aren't betting that data well. And that's a really good point. Sometimes getting even certain manufacturers and certain companies to kind of keep up with everything that you're innovating, keeping up with the market is very difficult because they have their own system and processes and making them all talk to each other is, you know, can be very difficult to do. In industries such as geotechnical and structural engineering, where tradition typically rules and change is extremely slow. Work processes can often become ingrained, uh, even to the point where they're obsolete. So we've, we've discussed a little bit about BIM and your role in BIM and some of the software, but you know, what are some of the nonprofit and open BIM efforts to streamline and standardize workflows? Like you mentioned it before that you're having to kind of push certain people to kind of help engineers actually be able to design with some of these products and some of these manufacturers, you know, what are your recommendations to avoid those sorts of things becoming obsolete? Part of our work is really a catch-up to the 150 years of steel and concrete tradition and standards that have allowed us to choose and specify a material and a system without yet knowing who's going to make it. Part of our work is catching up within traditional delivery methods, and, and I would actually include BIM as a traditional delivery method. So we got to do the work and get standards and data and descriptions of our field so engineers can do their work. That's all happening and that's all true. Although there's this really interesting, some areas that never got landline phones are able to just go right to cell phone, right? So you also wonder, like, you know, are we really 150 years behind stringing our phone wires, or should we really consider more modern and agile ways of getting our info out there? And I think there's some very smart people and some very rapidly changing fields right now. And I'm, we're listening and following the people who are also saying the future of BIM is not BIM. There's definitely a, um, an agile and a web component 
even now our plugin, for instance, is something that lives within BIM, but we can update it. So it's really great to be able to say, now that we know where the data is, or once we know where the data goes, then we can push an update out to all of our users. And so there is a changing space that's not even the BIM world that most people, myself included, looked at as just a desktop applications. We're trying to stay fluent with you know where things are going while also defining the core standards that the industry needs to have in place. In respect of what you just said, you know, you're kind of playing catch up. I think we all know, and I mentioned it before, you know, mass timber is a very sexy topic right now. Everyone's looking into it. Everyone's very curious. But you mentioned playing catch up with concrete and steel, which are very well established right now. And you mentioned, of course, you know, you have to look forward as well as, you know, still meet current codes, requirements, all of that. But Outside of like the BIM space, which is what we've talked about and what I mentioned before, you know, what are some other key challenges that you are seeing where rapid growth is always amazing, but everyone hits some sort of curve have to really learn? So what are some of those things you've seen? It's so alluring to jump in and do the showcase projects that it's almost holding us back as an industry right now. And it's also... There's been a little bit of an unfortunate either or chapter where I think Wood had to prove itself as equal structural system and the lead up to the Tallwood code adoption, which is now rolling out, was pretty contentious and there was a lot of negative propaganda and there's a lot of back and forth. What the challenge is now is can we develop smart optimum hybrids, especially with the cost of all materials right now? I mean, it's really ironic. A year ago, I really was having to like try and talk people into optimizing and that's gone by the wayside. Everybody's like looking at the price tag and like, okay, now I really want to learn how to use the right amount of the right materials. And that's great. But then the next step is, how do we develop smart hybrids and how do we not have the either or? Because the reality in the U.S. is that people have blended structural systems that they're super comfortable with and changing too many variables at once is never a great idea. So I really love to start with like, why don't you try a mass timber slab in that steel frame building you already know how to do? You know your envelope, you know your whole thing. Why don't you optimize for this first. And because of the relative impacts of things, I mean, somebody in a good practice who is weaving in a lot of wood slabs and really reducing concrete slab on deck is having a, a huge impact. The other extreme is, is tall wood. People are so attracted to the tallest wood buildings of this or that, but I would personally rather see a whole bunch of seven-story buildings than one 35-story building, just because I feel like it's going to be more impactful for more people, for more material, for more jurisdictions. And that's the challenge. It's, it's the everyday work that's impactful and not the showcase projects or the jewel boxes. What about the emerging standards uh, used for data and descriptions in timber structural systems? Can you go into a little more about that? They are still definitely emerging and and in Europe where it's more mature, it's still, there's still regional differences. So my personal feeling is that some of the best work on emerging data standards is being done by the, I would call it, I guess, an industry or a community devoted to transparency. So building sustainability data has increasingly become 
standardized and shared and open and free. And, and I love buildingtransparency.org and their database EC3 has really become a, a leading zone for transparency data. And a lot of the engineering firms um, who are committed to understanding wood, I think there's a standard called SE2050, which is also emerging and has come about from engineering firms who want to handle standard data across different materials in the interest of calculating embodied carbon. And I think that they sort of, in their own much more engineering, geeky, advanced way than me, they realized there weren't enough fields in the current standards and formed a working group whose work I'm following carefully and I'll have my data experts translate it for me. But I think we're all on the same path, which is how do we have enough fields to describe this living longitudinal renewable uh, material? And then how do we share that data amongst each other, just like other industries who have gotten good at that are doing? And essentially also, how do we interoperate with other industries? That work, I would point out, probably SC2050. The other part of it that's tied in for us is that transparency data is driven on EPDs. So the actual environmental product declarations on the footprint of individual products are important. There's an emerging standard for that called Open EPD. So even in the simplest work we're trying to do, which is an early phase carbon calculator, we have to really understand where all these new standards are going and try and integrate with them so that we can be part of those trends. And, and somebody can write a book about it afterwards. It won't be me, but I definitely have to interact with all of them. I know our firm, uh, DC Engineers, a lot of other firms too in SoCal, definitely committed to the SE 2050. And you know we have committees going on about that. So that's really interesting because... It is something that we are trying to provide to our clients too. Like, hey, if we do this type of mass timber study versus concrete or all steel, this is how it's going to affect the environment or the sustainability of the building. And it all comes with data. So that's great. The only thing I should say about that, because I'm a forestry guy, and uh, so I had a dual architecture forestry background, which was a rare and weird combo early on. It's a lot more mainstream now, which is great, but it's helped me have work permits in places where that skill set didn't have a match. And I have to point out, unfortunately, where even as the structural engineers come to grips with the footprint of this material in a building, and even as the manufacturers come to grips with their footprint as manufacturers and how to get it to your building, the methodologies don't even really include, which one of the things for me is the biggest impact is sustainable forestry behind that. And what happens with a material that's made by a forest that's fixing carbon, how does that get measured fairly? And we are still way all over the place on that. I do hope that in my practice lifetime, we see that data come to light. I think it, it's going to prove there's even bigger impacts that are super positive about this material. But you got to start somewhere and trust your data at every step. And I think we're doing the right things on that by keeping the methodologies focused on what we do know and then going from there because the numbers for wood are all over the place. I mean, steel and concrete, you know, they pollute and it's a question of how badly they pollute, but people are claiming numbers on wood that are like, they can range all over. It's like, so hopefully even in the next year or two, we get a little tighter on what the ranges and the shared standards are. 
I was always really interested in sustainability when I was in college. And it's interesting the story that they are creating around sustainability in wood as well. You kind of mentioned it. So you have a forestry degree. You've done a lot of work with different types of woods. And we're seeing, I think there are some manufacturers that are now opening up in the United States for mass timber. We have, you know, counterparts that have been manufacturing it in European countries. So can you speak to, or maybe you can provide some insight on what I think a lot of engineers are very curious about, and that is supply chain variations. Because I think a lot of engineers, and you mentioned it a little bit like hybrid system, you know, is that a more consistent system? You know, what does that look like? The supply chain variation is a real, I mean, this is a living material that has an actual uh, terroir almost, even if we're talking about spruce. And even if we're talking about black spruce from the region I know best, if you go to the north of that range, you're getting 24F super tight grain fiber that is 80 years to grow a small tree. And you're getting these little tiny grains, which are basically like what you'd get out of an old growth, but it's a small uh, rotational fiber. If you follow that spruce all the way down to the southern range, like in southern Vermont, where where I am, you might be lucky to get 20F. And then you're thinking, all right, well, this is the same exact species can have that much variation. What about other spruces? And you look at the European fiber and people try to interchange, but Europe is a much more temperate zone and it, they've had centrally planned forestry for a long time. Their spruce grows really quickly in a very mild environment. And so the CLT products you get are just not the same product. They're beautiful. They're interesting. They're actually very aesthetically attractive, but you have to really know as an engineer how different that is before you let your architect just try and get three of something. That's, I think, the real problem is, is there's this huge fiber variation and supply chain differences. I think that it's still great to start a job with 20F as a strength factor that many of the big wood baskets can meet. Because I just talked about spruce, but then in North America, we really have three big wood baskets and people only typically think of two of them. I've heard people say when you do glue lamb, is it Southern yellow pine or is it Doug fir? And the only choice is where are you on the Mason Dixon line? And I wanted to like jump up in the back and be like, ah, oh, spruce guys want to speak up here. So we do have the Southern Yellow Pine Wood Basket, we have the Northwest uh, Douglas Fir Wood Basket, and we have spruce, and now we have European spruce, all interacting in a supposedly interchangeable fashion in the North American market. And they're really, they're not as interchangeable as that. And I think the engineering practice ought to celebrate the regionality, get to know a fiber, optimize the fiber, tell the architect it's not going to be procured in the way that you're expecting steel or concrete to do. If we can choose and you can let me optimize, I can compete on price. That's sort of how that has to happen. Uh, and it's not for every job. Some jobs really do have to be procured three different ways and you have to drag people through that all the way till you get there. Hopefully I could talk enough about fiber that I don't have to talk about trade policy. So I'm just going to sneak out of the room if you ask me about that. <laughs> Not exactly trade, but maybe uh, going back to how the engineer and architect work together. Do you have any recommendations or tips on how maybe organizations or even engineers can bring more wood structure options uh, into their design and project delivery? 
maybe something the owner doesn't know, or do you have any recommendations on that? Choosing wood leads to, a, or at least looking closely at the wood option when it's early enough to optimize for it is a really big deal. It's just too late. If you design a steel and concrete building and then ask for the wood option, you've already lost the battle. It's not going to be cheaper. In fact, it, it really isn't going to be cheaper anyway. So you have to, if you want to do it and you want to sell the, the value and benefits and actual advantages of it, then I'd say that going in early with actually what it is is a big one. Getting to advantages is also really big. So we've talked about sustainability and that's easy. It doesn't always match up. One of the things for me that's fascinating right now is lightweight buildings. We're back into urban infill. We're back into high value real estate. We have built on a lot of our best soils. We've ruined a lot of soils through our brownfield activities. We have a lot of riverine and oceanfront and seismic areas and and those areas with poor soils, when you can have a building that's 40 to 50% lighter and, you know, has a ductile structure mass and can have a lightweight foundation, I'm seeing like incredible success among engineers who can understand that nuance and help project teams, especially places like Boston, where you're basically building on a colonial era trash or, but I think every single city has, you know, if you talk to your planners about it, that overlay is fascinating to me and it's super active in the projects I'm supporting right now. And I think that's a real engineering topic that somebody with savvy on that who wants to see what's going on should definitely reach out and and let me know how we can help projects in their jurisdiction that fit that profile. You just like touched on a topic like poor soil. So I used to work in geotech and you, you would never believe like what people bury. It's true. Because the story hasn't been told very well, I'm going to tell a quick story about the, the tallest all wood building in North America. It's 13 stories and it's publicized. It's a CLT shaft. It was a Nordic Structures proof of concept when CLT, they built a plant as a sawmill and nobody really was actually buying the product yet or knew how to specify the product. So they had to fight the fight and prove what could be done. And they did all the full-scale fire testing and all of the code background and self-developed a 13-story condo. The story that didn't get told about that as much is that it was on like a brownfield and a really bad soil where the riverine nature of, of the soils and then it's not even low seismic, so really prone to liquefaction. They basically were able to, instead of going down whatever, 250 feet with their piles, they were able to do a alternate design that saved about two and a half million dollars because the building was 40% lighter than what that base building was. And it it was sort of like a brownfield containment concrete raft with a lightweight building floating in the middle of it that could actually get, there could be major change under that. And they saved two and a half million dollars before going vertical. And yet most people only want to talk about what's above ground. So I think those sorts of stories are going to become more and more common in the practice and the engineers who are good at that are going to have a real inner track on successful projects. Like you were saying, lighter buildings, lighter foundations, especially in seismic zones. If you're talking about the owner saving them $2 million, that's a good point that engineers can study and hopefully bring up. Yeah, and you can give your geotechnical engineers a break. 
piles. <laughs> oh my goodness, you guys. So like I did a project on, so I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, which has a research and development base. And it's a uh, Department of Defense base. I did a geotech job where I had to do the drilling activities and they had bombs buried. They had phosphorus buried. And they were like, so we're at like the pre-construction meeting and they're like, here are all of the things that you can encounter. So I'm like, that's not young, you know? <laughs> so if you can help your geotech engineer, sometimes they're living in a risky business, but that's really interesting. And, you know, to end up here, you know, and you've mentioned it a couple of times and it's been said a couple of times, you know, this is a very innovative industry. It's a very new industry in the United States. And there's a lot of really fun things it sounds like you're working on. So for engineers, considering a career like yours, you know, what advice would you give them to kind of develop their proficiency in this new and emerging market? That is a good question. And even though I'm not an engineer, I do love speaking to students and finding out what's going on. And I think the students themselves are probably pushing a gap. But most people, most engineers that I knew didn't get enough actual curriculum study in wood. I've seen some really good programs that I'm shocked how little they have. So it's going to, will be really exciting and hopefully will change rapidly that more and more programs. And I could think of some already who are really taking it on. So if you love it as a material and you know that as a student, then certainly seeking out the places in which that's going to be validated is a great head start. The next generation is going to be super ready to use new tools and to do all the hybrid stuff we've been talking about. So I'm a little bit more um, biased towards on-the-job training with great people who want to do something or working on the industry side itself. There are shops I can think of that have 50 talented engineering people who are working in one medium and getting incredibly good at it. And sometimes these young people don't even realize how good they are. They're teaching me about stuff that I didn't know they were optimizing or building tools. And so even though I didn't go directly into engineering, I, I spent a time when I was young working at the highest rate throughput, sort of what's the big corporate version of this that's going to really help me understand how to be at scale. And then later on, I can figure out what sort of operation I want to be part of or what sort of group. But there's no substitute for when you're young, like jumping in and learning how to do something at, at the full speed. And even if the school that you've chosen, or even if you weren't able to get that formally, then, you know, it isn't too late for anybody. In fact, I would say I really came from a solid timber background. And it was only when I realized how the market was changing and how I wanted to be a, basically a mid-career student of mass timber that I decided I'm going to learn this like it's the next big thing. And I think that can happen at any time in anybody's life. And that's one of the beauties of being part of a young industry, really. I like what you said specifically about doing like a mid-career change, like learning and educating yourself on anything new is always important. And even if you're trying something new, it's important to fail forward. It's okay to fail as long as you fail forward. But I really like what you said about that and how like the students are bridging the gap as well. And we're seeing it in our own companies. And I think there's been a lot of studies like younger engineers nowadays are more willing to kind of expand their reach in education, but also try new things, adopt new technologies. They're really dynamic in how they choose to learn. Absolutely. Just to give my take on that in school, yeah, I know a lot of engineering schools, 
they may or may not learn timbre. That's kind of the thing. But even for me, at least in SoCal, it's kind of crazy that I think it should be required because wood here, at least in California, is like everywhere. I'm kind of surprised that there's not a lot of, or maybe like it's not mandatory to take like a wood class. I can imagine it's daunting if you're a new student or a new engineer and you haven't taken a wood class and you're looking at all this wood components. It's a lot to take in, but yeah, I think that's one thing that we can do for our education. And for sure, I, I know the innovation and the new technologies and the software that's the, all the newer, I'm still pretty young, but even the younger engineers that are coming into the industry, they got, you know, they're used to like programming and I think they're going to do great things with that. So thanks for coming on, Eli. We really appreciate it. We enjoyed this conversation and thanks for coming on. Me too. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to get in contact with Eli, we've included his email in the description below. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 54, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.